This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. the southernmost point of dawn to the lands of always winter and what is west of west and the shadows in the east this is casterly talk i'm cat knapsack i am not west of westeros west of westeros at all uh, i am i am here in burbank trying to get back to normal casterly talk programming i had vi- visions and dreams not the kind of visions and dreams that daenerys targaryen had but visions and dreams of of actually uh Continuing the Casterly Talk rewatch through the holidays, and that didn't happen. But what did happen is the Game of Thrones rewatch I was doing with Grace, my girlfriend, my partner, uh, we finished it. And it's been weird to kind of be in this Casterly Talk rewatch version of, of, of now in, in season two, episode six today. That's what we'll be looking at the old gods and the new, and then uh, finishing the series, wrapping up season eight last week. It actually has been a, it's been helpful to watch an episode like today's episode that we're reviewing that we're looking back at as we dig into the themes and lessons and the memorable moments and all the things that make this series this story stick with us. To have season eight so fresh in my mind, it was interesting to take that into this episode. As I mentioned, season two, episode six, we are here for uh, the old gods and the new. Uh, this is an episode that originally aired in um, uh, May of 2012, May 6th for The Old Gods. And the new is a d- episode directed by David Nutter, which is interesting because it's his first Game of Thrones episode. But he'd be very key going forward in the series, particularly season eight. Writer of this episode was Vanessa Taylor, her second out of, I think, three credited uh, scripts. She was also credited as as uh, an executive producer during this time, uh, as often happens. And uh, she's great. She's wonderful. Uh, we uh, She goes on to become an Oscar-nominated screenwriter for her work on The Shape of Water. This is, I'll say it right now, cinematography, Martin Kenzie, editing Oral Nori Odie. We, we, we always love to credit the cinematographer and the editors as well for uh, just shaping the look, feel, pacing of the show. But going back to, to Vanessa Taylor... Just uh, a wonderful episode. And an overall looking at it here, we've been looking, you know, here we are season two, and we talk about it, and anyone who comes on the show with me, and, and I've been trying to, like, get into their heads about what they think about season two now, especially compared to what they think about season two back then. And a lot of people still have, have that vibe of, yeah, season two over time has become one of my top Seasons and for me, season two, I still there's there's certain days maybe like on a random Wednesday. Well, I'll say season two is my favorite season of Game of Thrones. It wasn't like that at the beginning, but it is episodes like this one that just have just a plethora. That's right, I said a plethora of juicy scenes full of uh, just examination of morals, morals in this world, philosophies, a bunch of intrigue, a great tension. And where season one is something I consider just this perfect season that just set the tone. I think season two, in the end, faced with the impossible task of expanding the show, expanding the story, did so by getting small, which in the end might have spoiled us, I do think, in a good way. Just by season seven and eight, when the pacing, for better or worse, and sometimes better, sometimes worse, 
when the pacing kind of picks up, you kind of go back to seasons like this where you can spend time with Tywin and, and Arya. And and I'll never argue with that. If they had done seven and eight in full ten episodes and taken a little more time, I'm definitely not going to complain. I understand some of their choices later on just in terms, not in terms of the actual plot, but just in the choices of like, let's just... Let's just get to the battle. I think that's something when we get to season eight, I'll be discussing more of. I feel by season eight, they do uh, make a choice, and I like the choice of saying, you know all these characters. You know what's at stake for them. Let's get into the ring. <laughs> Let's see the action. We'll figure it out, and the action will tell a lot of the story as well. But that is a conversation for another time. Right now, I'm just a man in his Chihuahua hat and a Starks T-shirt talking about season two of game of thrones and yeah yeah don't worry uh more guests uh, guest hosts on the way just kind of getting back in the swing of things recording this so i had to kind of do a reset too again just wrapping season eight not being in season two for a bit now for a couple weeks i also had pre-taped some of the episodes in december so i was a little behind, and and that the 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 previously on is always a help, but uh, just Renly is freshly dead. Rest in peace, Renly. Marcella has been shipped off to Dorne. Danny is being wowed and wooed in Carth, no longer in out there in the uh, red waste of, uh, of of Essos. She is in Carth and being wowed and wooed by a lot of people, a lot of trinkets and baubles, uh, as uh, Zaro Zohandoxus would say. And Arya has two wishes left. That's right, she's in Harrenhal, and a lot of other things going as well, including Theon heading to Winterfell at the uh, end of, uh, or in the middle of last episode, and taking Winterfell. So uh, let's dive into some themes and lessons just from my mind here today. Like I said, very juicy episode, but the big one that keep com- keeps coming back, and, and Game of Thrones, like many of these big kind of epic shows, it's it's all about choices. And you make one choice, what does that lead? What does that lead you? Can you come back from those choices? Ned Stark makes some choices, and finally he can't come back, and that still hangs over the show. It does to the very end of the show, really, but Aura even is facing that as well. But one of the kind of themes and then therefore big lessons of this episode that I just kind of kept coming back to is the question of who are you and what are you going to be? Who are you going to be? What are you going to do with all of this? This world's demanding you to make big choices, demanding you to ask yourself, what do you feel is morally right? What is justice? These are things that keep coming back every episode without a doubt. But here, we'll just look what we got. Theon has taken Winterfell. Winterfell, that's a choice. I almost said Winterhell. Hot pie, we miss you. We have uh, Theon taking Winterfell. That's a choice. But then the follow-up is... Who are you going to be as the Lord of Winterfell? What are you going to do as Lord of Winterfell? And he doubles down on it. John is north of the wall. He's talked a good game. He's talked a good game and wants to uh, range out in the hills with Corn Halfhand. He was built for this. John's a ranger of the Night's Watch, right? That's who he is. That's who he wants to be. He's actually a steward, we know, but but he wants to be and he wants to he killed a white man come on let me go hunt with corn half and half and see some is this the guy yes this is the guy all right i'll take him with me who are you gonna be john he's faced with that this is a, a this this is a very important john episode we also have the hound making a choice who's the hound gonna be he's kind of always until the end to the glorious fiery end he is always kind of who he is but no one really fully understands who he is. And he makes an important choice in this episode of who are you and what are you going to be? Rob Stark is faced with this big choice. He's a lot of big choices in season two as the King of the North. Talisa has already shown up. He's, uh, you know, flirted with her on the uh, bloody fields of battle. And, and now he has some big choices of ahead of him. And, and we'll come to that in a second. But it, it's interesting that in this episode, Talisa kind of is explaining we start to learn a little bit more of the big choices she has made in her past to bring her over here and how that affects Rob Stark. Joffrey, we got this is the big riot scene. This is the King's Landing flea bottom riot scene. And I'll just say interesting week to watch this one. I have some thoughts on that and what this is versus what uh, people might think it is. Uh, this is um, 
an important moment, and, and this is one that's uh, uh, well explained by D.B. Weiss in the extra footage, the extra kind of behind-the-scenes stuff here. I always suggest watching those. Joffrey is faced with a choice. Joffrey, as D.B. Weiss says, for the first time in his life has had the shit, in this case, literally the shit thrown back at him for the first time. He has just been probably, you got to imagine, since he could walk and talk, he is just, uh, I'm Joffrey Baratheon, you're not. I am the king or future king, and F you, I am the prince. Look, look what we see in the king's road with him, right? We hate him for a reason in the show. And this is an episode where he's asked, he's tasked. You know, he, he moments before the riot, he's, he's talking about his little brother's crying, Tommen's crying, come on, I'm a prince. Uh, and, and then the riot begins, and he is asked in this moment, what kind of king are you going to be? Who are you going to be? And uh, he uh, answers. He answers. As D.B. Weiss says, he kind of hunkers down after this siege mentality. So that's one of the big themes there. I also think there's a lot of the war of the upper class felt by the lower class, a big Game of Thrones th- uh, uh, theme. And then a lot of stuff with Danny. And we're going to get to that in a bit. And I have, I, I got to tell you, it's just been, it's been really interesting, fun which is a weird word to use around something, uh, a tragic character like Daenerys Targaryen. Now that, especially that I've seen the end, it's been a while since I watched season eight uh, and uh, I watched it a lot when it was out, watched it like three or four times uh, at, a, at, a, at a chunk and, and reviewing the episodes back then for, for here, us here at Catch Lee Talk. But this past week or so was the first time I spent a lot of time with episode eight or season eight since it aired. And, I've just become even more, I'll say, kind of obsessed going back and seeing the moments in Danny's life and seeing how right she is and seeing how wrong she is, seeing how she is challenged, seeing how she was lied to, seeing how the world treated her and how it all funneled and fueled into what happened and why I think she's a tragic character. I think she's a character you should be rooting for, even to the bitter end but she was dealt a lot of bad cards and some of the choices she made were bad. But along the way, even some of the choices that we look at now and go, oh, I still kind of stand behind him as a fan of Danny. And this episode, I've always loved the stuff with her and the Spice Trader at Carth. In this particular episode, it's my favorite stuff between them. And we're going to get to it in a second. But watching that now, comparing it to what happens in season eight, and just kind of seeing the stuff that is there for her to either learn from, overcome, improve upon, or at sometimes, uh, I, I think correctly, power through it. Uh, and the lessons and trials of Dan- Daenerys Targaryen in Karth uh, just continue to fascinate me. We'll talk about that in a second. And that's something, too, that I can't wait to have Rachel Cushing and others back on the show to dive in a little bit more. We might do that, even, even after this is all done, or even along the way in this rewatch, we might do a, a special look at at the, the journey of Daenerys Targaryen. So let's go back to the top uh, here. Some of the things that I absolutely love in uh, this uh, episode, the, uh, the, the who are yous. Uh, uh, I, I actually do really love the, uh, all the stuff with, with Theon. Again, someone I got to say, compared, you know, comparing it to what I, you see at the end of um, uh, uh, season eight and where his life goes. Um, on the, on the off chance, maybe you're just watching Game of Thrones for the first time and you follow along with these episodes. Like spoilers, I'll warn, I'll warn. I'll try to not completely give away, but um, he, Theon doubling down on the choice, uh, you know, to, to rule Winterfell. Um, it's a touching scene. We always talk about here, and we'll jump around here as we always do. I always look at foreshadowing and, uh, you know, just in terms of plot and predictions and, and looking back at things that just have more meaning now that the story's completed. And I got to tell you, uh, a lot of the stuff with Bran uh, in bed there, the beginning when Theon takes the castle. Great stuff. It opens with Maester Lewin sending out the raven in haste. A lot of tension there. Great stuff. Uh, but Theon, at the end of that um, speech, or, you know, Theon's trying to tell Bran, just give up the castle. This is what you should do. It's what a good lord would do. I'm the lord of Winterfell now. Uh, Theon is asked by Bran, Theon, did you hate us the whole time? And, man, you get into a lot of stuff that that just goes into Theon's life about who he wants to be. He was a great joy. And this season, season two, is all about him trying to Win back that name and win 
some kind of love from his real father and contrasting and comparing it and fighting against the love he probably did receive at the Starks. But I always say he also was thrown in his face, too. Maester Lewin, who I love, Donald Stumpter plays, uh, plays him so well. But even with the stuff with Osha that's seen you know, a couple episodes ago where Theon's kind of being Theon at the time to, to Osha, and Maester Lewin come, comes in here to remind Theon is, of his place, and, and Tyrion reminds him of his place. You're a ward, really a prisoner, of the Starks, but deep down, you know, deep down, Theon feels you know what we all want. We want to be loved and accepted, and, and sometimes it's found family, and sometimes you want nothing more to be considered something else, something that you're striving for, and, and, and you're not going to get it. You're not feeling it, and maybe you make decisions based on that, and here's Theon. It's a costly one. This episode, uh, this, this episode with these great big choices, looking at some of our main characters, John and Theon come to mind. They have... These are transformative episodes for them in the sense that into this episode, there's things they could do that would drastically change their path. And, and, and along the way, every choice would. Butterfly effect, the great what-ifs of Game of Thrones. But looking at it in terms of just emotional stuff, um, and this is what draws me back to the series time and time again. These what-ifs to me are always more than just plot what-ifs. Just these emotional what-ifs. You know, if Theon allowed himself to, in this moment with Bran, he's not going to turn around and be like, yo, I did, I, yeah, actually, I, I did uh, kind of hate you at times. I resented you guys. But there were some good days. Like, Theon's not going to have that conversation. I don't believe he hates them. I don't believe he hates them. And that plays out time and time again to the end where he, end of his life, where he makes some choices to go back and, and try to not prove that he's a Stark, but Prove that he's himself, and John gives him permission later on in life. But it all goes back to this particular moment. Sir Roderick Cassell shows back up, or is brought back up after going to uh, kind of uh, defend Torrance Square. And this is the brutal execution scene. I do want to play a call here. We always take calls, and we got one from our pal Eric Monroe on this particular moment. And Eric, take it away. Hey, Candy Cashley Talk. So, season two, episode six, The Old Gods and New, I think features a very underrated death, and that is the death of Sir Roderick. And I think it's a very important scene because I think the scene before with Theon burning the letter Rob was a very important scene, represents Theon's choice. However, when he beheads Sir Roderick, that's when, in my opinion, where he really reaches the point of no return because there's just no going back from that. And the fact that he doesn't even give him a clean kill he can't just kill him in one stroke with the sword it's a, it's a horrifying scene it just it represents how theon is no longer in a, in a way clean and i just think it was that was the point of no return and it's also why in season three and theon's going through all that torture it, it is hard to feel bad for him when you think back of how he murdered sir roderick uh when he says to the kids you know i'm off to see your father it's just a sad moment Great call, Eric. Yeah, you're 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 in th- you're thinking with me here. You're in line with me here. We've talked about it. we talked about the big choice that Theon makes the previous week. Uh, previously on, he's not going to warn Rob Stark, uh, or yeah, previous episode maybe maybe the episode before it doesn't matter. Before this, Theon makes a choice. He burns the letter that he's going to send Rob. And he wants to try to claim the Greyjoy name, claim things in uh, the name of, of his house and for his father and try to uh, reconnect with uh, what he feels he, he lost over there. But it's not over and, and it's never truly over. The chance for redemption exists um, all along the way to the very end, to the very end. You have a choice to redeem yourself. And Theon, this is the big one. I, I think the Rob, the, the the Rob letter that that Eric is mentioning, uh, the burning of it, could have been one thing, and he could have even taken Winterfell. I'm not saying I agree with that, but he could have taken it and ruled it in a different way. Way at least the people there, because he says it to to Bran. Hey, the castle's mine, but the people are yours. He's trying to tell them, "Look, I'll treat you as good as Ned." Eh, you know, they're not going to buy that, nor should they. But. So I'm not saying Theon could have been a great lord of Winterfell and ruled it with just a soft glove and everyone would have loved him. No, but he can't come back. He can't come back to this point. He comes back later on in his life, maybe. We all, again, hope you hope you constantly have the chance of redemption. 
if you keep going down a path. But it it is never going to be. This season is the last we get of, of this version of him, including his own body, including what he, you know, he loses so much, and he loses so much of himself inside out. It's painful. It's, it's, it's horrible. And I'm, I'm with Eric, too. I, every time I do, I feel sorry for Theon. I really do all of his existence because a lot, a lot of it had to do with what he was given. But I go back to this moment and the, the brutal execution of Roderick Casal, uh, someone who, as he, uh, Roderick says, I should have put a sword through your belly instead of in your hand. And it is uh, brutal. And I love, I, um, uh, I love what, um, I really do love what um, uh, Roderick uh, says to Theon. Uh, God, God's help you, Theon Greyjoy. Now you're truly lost. And I love what Eric says there uh, in his call about Theon is, is kind of dirty. He's he's now kind of dirty after this and uh, takes a long time, a lot of choices, a lot of big choices later on uh, to uh, get clean again. So uh, that is that stuff there. And then we go north of the wall and we got John. I want to be a ranger. That's who I am. I know I'm a ranger, a sworn man of the Night's Watch. I took my vows Goody boy, gonna do goody things north of the wall. And he meets Corn Half and a man who knows the truth, a man who's got some, uh, he's got some hard lines in his soul that I understand where they come from. A night, uh, excuse me, a light, uh, a life in the Night's Watch, fighting the the, the wildlings, the free folk, as, as we try to like to call them around here. But Corn Half and sees them as wildlings. Yeah, you know, it's one of those like you, you kind of get it, and I love the character. Of Corn Half Hand and Simon Armstrong plays him. He's one of my stars of this episode. Plays him so well in just a short amount of time. He's really just kind of drawn in by Corn Half Hand, a hard man indeed. And I love all the stuff here. But John is the, just again transformative episode. John is never going to be the same after this episode. We we like this choice. We don't like the choice Theon made, but I think we like the choice. Perhaps even love the choice that John makes in this episode. He is not going to chop off Egret's head. Uh, he is faced with the face of the wildlings for the first time, really. His whole life raised to believe in one thing, raised into uh, accepting one narrative. Truth in some of that narrative? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, his uncle, Benjamin Stark. Has kind of, uh, at times, season one has, uh, there's some honor. He has some honorable thoughts about the wildlings. You know, he gets it, but he's fighting them. I love Benjamin. I'm not saying he's a bad character at all. Much like Horn half End. I get where it comes from. But in this episode, John, the great wannabe ranger, sworn brother of the Night's Watch, takes his vows. He's the shield of the realm, is now looking at someone who is in this realm just on the wrong side of the, the wall. It's powerful. He can't do it. Is it love, lust, confusion? It's how he was raised, the goodness inside him. There's a lot going on there. I love it. I, I kind of think love has already begin, uh, begun to kill his duty as it begins what, again, what I believe is the most transformative part of his life. Uh, and um, he, uh, he can't do it with eagerness. He can't do it. It's slightly different than the books. This episode is one of the ones that, you know, this season, I, I, in a weird way, I don't think this season gets enough credit for how far it went outside the books, and everyone holds on to that a lot. And, I, I you know, this rewatch is, is not about the books for those just joining the conversation here. Uh, there's a lot of great things in book two, Clash of Kings. Love all the books. Big book fan. Finish them, George. Come on, George. But I still love season two more. I'll say it. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I just think it kind of cleans up the story a bit, streamlines streamlines a lot of things, and even the stuff with Egret, definitely different. Uh, but you do get, I'll say this: you do get a little bit more explanation why Corin left John to do it. Here in the show, it's always played a little weird, right? All right, new brother, a nice watch. I guess you kill the white, kill the girl. You're hesitating, but we'll let you go. But it's explained. It's been a while since I've read the exact passages, so allow me that kind of leeway to bring it up with uh, some some uh, room to kind of remember the exact words. But uh, essentially, Corn Halfan is like, yeah, I, I wanted to see what you were. I want to see who you are. He, he wants. He's asking the choice. Who are you? What are you going to be? And I think Corn would probably say, 
especially the way it turns out. I wish you would have chopped her head off. But John doesn't. He can't. And it is uh, fascinating. But prior to that, we're jumping kind of to the end there, the big moment. I, I, you don't want to bury the lead with John and Egret there. And, you know, with Kit Harrington and Rose Leslie, I guess. Uh, God bless them and their family. But I absolutely love every bit of dialogue with... I had to stop myself from just continuing to, to write it all down. Um, every bit of dialogue with... It's a kind of a brief scene with, with John Corn and the other three brothers of the Night's Watch walking out to uh, hunt these wildlings. And, and they have such a great conversation. You see Ghost. He's there. He's padding up away on the hill. John's trying to get him called down. And, and, and he says, uh, you know, uh, it's not a pet. Because uh, Corn Half-End says, you lost your pet. It's not a pet. And Half-End responds with, yeah, you're right. He's not a pet. You can't tame a wild thing. You can't trust a wild thing. Um goes on to say, so you think uh, wild creatures have their own rules, their own reasons, and you'll never know them. I talk about things that mean more now. Saying that to Jon Snow, who ends up walking away with them at the end. Just Jon's journey, is, we've talked about the why of Jon Snow on this channel before. Just to hear Half-End say this to him, and to watch Ghost, Ghost is kind of like, I, 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 I'm going to hunt, I'm going to do my own things. He's doing, he's doing his dire wolf things. But there's a look that John and Ghost share at the end of this where it's almost like Ghost is like, man, this ain't, this ain't me, man. Go do what you got to do. But this ain't me. I'm going to go find a cave. Maybe you should too. And in fact, there's some stuff later on in this conversation uh, that Cord Halfan uh, says about caves um, and tells John, uh, you know, find a nice cave. The wildlings like finding nice caves, I should say, should clarify, and attacking at night. I love this because uh, John's talking about being from the north. Uh, there's, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not afraid to die. Corn gets very upset about that. I don't want you to be happy to give up uh, your life. I want you to fight for it. I want you to claw for it. I, I, I want you to fight for your life, fight to keep it, because your death will mean nothing to anyone south of the wall. That's what we tell ourselves in the night's watch, is what Corn's saying, and even joking about its words we say to give ourselves comfort. But it's so interesting to talk about foreshadowing and things that just mean more now. This scene meant more to me than it ever has meant, and I love this scene because I love this episode. To have Half-Ant kind of tell John to his face, you, your death will mean nothing, nothing to the people it's supposed to mean everything to. And I don't necessarily think that's specifically, I definitely, I definitely don't think there's some actual foreshadowing to John's death at the end of season five. Could be, but, but you know, it's out there by that point. But I, I, don't, I don't think it's that specific. It is, again, these emotional what-ifs and these emotional kind of uh, foreshadowings that, uh, that I just am drawn in by. To, to these words Half-End keeps saying to John, look around, boy, When John, John, looking around the north. You're from the north, this is the real north. We're fighting the north. And look around, boy, does this look like home to you? You start thinking you know this place and it'll kill you. It's so interesting to have Half-End say that to John about where they are. Does this look like home to you? It ends up being John's home and everywhere else where he thought he knew. He thought he knew Castle Black. He thought he knew the south. He loses his life. Quite frankly, surprised he got away with it farther down the King's Road. Love everything about this scene. Love it. It's one of those ones I just kind of want to rewatch from time and time again. Just putting it on there about what it means. Uh, John does uh, give it back to Half-Hand a little bit, you, you know, because uh, Half-Hand understands the wildlings he claims. Well, you, you tell me you, you don't know. You can't know these wildlings. Uh, you can't know, and, and half and kind of laughs it off, and he does know them. He knows them well, which um, which is fa- factors, I think, some of uh, why half and thinks his plan that uh, he needs to enact after they're captured uh, well, it will work. So who are you? Who are you going to be? What are you going to be? What are you going to do with your life? And John is faced a little bit later on with that in a big way, and he makes what we can all, I think, agree is the right choice. Uh, a little bit now, we're going to talk a little bit more about the, the wars of the upper class, felt with the lower class, but uh, I, a little moment here on the Hound making the choice during the riot to go back and save Sansa. 
I love to highlight this one because I think the Hound's been making different choices than the ones he made at the beginning of the show, running down Micah, being a little bit more like, eh, I serve who I serve and I don't care. I just like killing, um, uh, you know, and he, you know, he defends, defends Loris Tyrell against his brother. We know it's not so much about Loris, more about he's just sick of his brother kind of, um, you know, doing to everyone else what he did to him as a kid. And that's something that's going to drive him to the very end. But I, I think this particular moment, this brutal scene, it's tough to watch. It's tough to watch. And I'm okay with things that are sometimes tough to watch, sometimes that are too brutal, too realistic, because that stuff really happens. Sometimes you want to escape, even with Game of Thrones. But the riot scene uh, and uh, Sansa and the small folk uh, there from the flea bottom about to, you know, uh, attack her. They have attacked her, assault her, rape her, saved by the Hound. I don't think viewers ever forgot that the Hound made this choice. I don't think I don't think and great bringing her back to Tyrion. Thank you, Hound. Thank you, Kilgain. I didn't do it for you. Get the little birds injured. Give her get her back to her cage. He's gruff. He's the Hound. He's the Hound. He's Sandor to the very end. But this is one of my favorite Hound moments. And again, I this is what the show does so well. I'd say it time and time again. What the story does so well. But in this moment, this high tension moment, Sansa being attacked, assaulted. And the music swells, the tension swells, and for the first time, if you're watching it, and there comes the hound to save the day, you kind of don't know what to think, and I love that. And this is, uh, the hound's going to ask ask it himself, who are you, and what are you going to be? He's always going to be a little rough, definitely rough around the edges, but at the, at the heart of it, as my girlfriend says, he's a nice boy, the hound, nice boy. Talking about Rob Stark, he is uh, being faced with choices. We got some foreshadowing coming towards the end of the episode with Roos Bolton, but he's got more Talisa stuff going on. He is a king. He's the king of the north. He's made some vows to Walder Frey. We know. We already know. We get it from the first moment he lays eyes uh, on this bloody nurse from Volantis. He's probably going to break those vows, and that can't be good. But that aside, he's a king now. He's a king now. Who are you going to be as a king? Episode one of season two, they make this choice. It's the War of Five Kings. Well, we're going to meet most of those kings and the other rulers, and what kind of ruler are they going to be? That's what we're asking. That's what this whole season is kind of about, these big choices and, 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 and how you rule. Big to Game of Thrones, big to season two. Rob Stark, here he is. He's in this battle. He's got some frustrations going on. Obviously, they want the girls. His mother's come back. You know, uh, mom meets Talisa. That's a great little moment. But I love it. And we get a little more detail later on in other episodes. But I love that, you know, it's kind of revealed here for the first time that Talisa's a lady. uh, Noble birth from Volantis. And she clearly, what is a noble girl from Volantis doing over here in Westeros? Not fighting this war. You're riding with me, but you're saving everyone. And you're putting your heart into everyone. And you're putting your heart into compassion and empathy. And, and that's affecting Rob. Ah, look, Talisa's, uh, you know, good looking. We get it. Oh, we get it, Rob. We get it. But these are the scenes, these are the moments where Talisa affects Rob, the love is real, the connection is real, the admiration is real. And she's not saying it directly here. Well, you wouldn't want that to be the case. You wouldn't want that kind of dialogue. But she is, she's asking Rob, who do you want to be? Just her presence, just her story is asking Rob that question. And we'll get those answers very soon. He's just dealing with some stuff back now at Winterfell at the end of the episode we talked about. Joffrey's choice and now we can get into kind of the other kind of theme and lesson it's more of a lesson here the wars of the upper class and how they're felt by the lower class Jorah mentions that a few times you know they don't care you know poor folk don't care who sits on the Iron Throne they really don't it's the wheel that needs to be broken it's something that's going to be close to Danny's heart it maybe already is close to Danny's heart and stuff uh, um, you know more stuff coming with that, I guess we'll say. But it's not just the ride in King's Landing. I like uh, the idea here uh, that Theon is kind of part of this here. The, uh, the wars of the upper class. He's he's there in the in the in the town square, so to speak, of Winterfell. 
trying to say, look, look, I, I know you all know me. I'll treat you nice. I'll look you in. I, I just took over Winterfell. Don't you worry about it. It's the same. And they're not having it, nor should they, because they don't care. They're loyal to the Starks. The Starks have treated them well for a long time. But to Theon, it doesn't matter. It's just, you're all pawns, chess pieces. I'm trying to claim this castle to win some bigger game. And he chooses to rule by fear. And it's a world uh, that has to bow to fear, I think. And the death of Sir Roderick, again, going back to referring to Eric Monroe's call at the beginning of this episode, Theon is dirty. Theon is dirty. He's covered in blood, drenched in rain, covered in mud as well. The, 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 the murder of Roderick is not quick. It's not painless. It's not with any honor. Theon has made that choice, and he's ruling the small folk by fear. And even though he holds the castle for a bit, that's not what's gonna. That's not what's gonna keep him in power, and he doesn't stay in power. But we go to the riots in King's Landing. Just interesting to know. To me, this riot is is about the literal Game of Thrones spilling out to the people. It's it's not a coup. Uh, this isn't France, anyways. This isn't a rebellion or insurrection. It was a scream for mercy. Riots are the voice of the unheard, right? And it's a scream for mercy. It's a scream for a chance. But it was violent. And it was brutal. And it was too much. And bad things happen. There's a beast in every man, and it stirs when you put a sword or a cow pie in their hand. Um, but this, to me, is kind of one of those dividing line of the politics of Game of Thrones. Whose violence is more appropriate? Which one is right? They're probably both wrong. But it's the wheel that keeps on going. Again, Danny has some good ideas. How she gets there, how she wants to get there might be something we discuss later. But going to these rides at King's Landing, we got, by the way, this starts with great. I don't want to overlook the Cersei and Tyrion stuff. Cersei's got the great vengeance kind of little speech or quote. Marcella's being shipped off. There's a lot of stuff going on there. I never want to overlook the. Um, uh, what uh, Lena Headey and uh, Cersei Lannister brings to the story. Of course, uh, her and Tyrion have just a lot of stuff going on in this season, so not to overlook that. But the riots is kind of the big thing. They could have got it. The tension was there. Tyrion's right on it. And uh, we talk about Joffrey. It's a lesson of who you're going to be, but already bad choices are being made. But this, those are the choices. The, these are all people suffering because there's a war that they're, they have nothing in. Who sits on that Iron Throne won't change their lives one bit. It is a upper-class war being felt by the lower class. The burden is on the lower class. They're just hungry. They want a chance. I love later on Shay saying to Sansa, still naive, who just went through a very traumatic experience, and she's shocked. She's shocked. She should be shocked. We understand why she's shocked. But sitting there where Shay saying that man hated me. He didn't know me, but he hated me. It's like, yeah, yeah. He's lived that his whole life being hated for who he was, being hated for his position in life, being hated for how others feel about him. So Shay is not necessarily condoning the actions, nor should she. But it is something that's always at play in Game of Thrones. We see soldiers later on. Um, thinking about some of the stuff with, uh, you know, Ed Sheeran around the campfire. The great thing about that scene is Arya, who's been going around killing Lannisters, meets the Lannister soldiers who kind of want nothing to do with it, but they have to. There's no other way of life. It's a little bit later on in the show, later on in the series. We'll talk about that more, of course. But again, this is kind of that dividing line. Uh, this is um, cause and effect. And uh, when faced with it, Joffrey makes the wrong choices from this. Uh, uh, just, a, again, brutal sequence, such high tension. And, again, one of those season two does not have the budget of the show later on. They have to use different tricks of the trade to, to make the whole moment seem bigger. It's pretty brutal in the books as well. Uh, a lot of additional stuff with, uh, with Lala Stokeworth and everything. I don't think all of that was needed in this uh, episode. Plays br- uh, um, brilliantly. And... Um, you know, it's just a reminder of of what's at stake in in uh, these battles, these war for the thrones. It's uh, it's the fate of of the little folk, the small folk, the the people down in Flea Bottom, or even uh, a few higher uh, rungs, higher up, uh, a few rungs higher on the social ladder. Excuse me. 
they are the one who who, who uh, have the burden of uh, these Game of Thrones, and this is where uh, it all comes to play. So I love that sequence, uh, and the lessons is there. Uh, final thing here, the big lessons. I want to go into it, the trials and lessons of Danny and Karth. So I do love the Spice Trader. I do, but I don't consider him a good dude. He's swarmy. He is uh, misogynistic. He's sexist. He is pompous. Very self-important. He's uh, worked his way up. He comes from a, a family of spice traders. We learn a little bit about his grandfather, who may have uh, started us all, selling pepper from the back of uh, of his uh, cart and marrying above his station in life. Spice trader's got some great humor. He's probably great at a party. I get it, but I love the character. I really do love the character. This particular scene is why I love him. I've always loved this scene. But again, having watched season eight just this past week, finishing that whole story, the tragic tale of Daenerys Targaryen, and it's tragic, and it should hurt. And I always say, you've heard me say before, you've listened to me before, say, I don't think any inspirations you took from Danny's life before the end go away. They should never go away. She's a wonderful, spectacular character. Absolutely one of my favorites. And I got to tell you, my appreciation for even Amelia Clark in this role and just Daenerys Darkarian as a character on the show, the book's great as well, but on the show just continues to grow. The path is full of great inspirations, great moments, great victories, and it's full of even bigger lessons, and it's full, full of a lot of foreshadowing to me. The producers have now kind of said, it's in that book that I always mention, Fire Cannot Kill Dragon, that by season three, they kind of knew where they were going. They kind of knew where they needed to get to. There's the famous lunch meeting with George R. R. Martin at a New Mexico restaurant where George kind of uploaded the big beats of the story. So a lot of things from season three on you can really point to and say there's some stuff in there for fans of Daenerys Targaryen that maybe you just didn't pay attention to, or maybe you didn't want to pay attention to, or maybe need to be reanalyzed. And also, again, some wonderful, powerful, inspirational victories from Daenerys Targaryen. Um, cannot wait to get to season three, and the first time she really yells Dracarys with meaning. Well, season two she does too. Let me take that back. Season two we got that as well. Just one of my favorites. A lot of people's favorites, Dracarys, comes in season three. Let's, let's go into what this scene is. What's going on in this scene? Danny wants her birthright. She's gone to the spice trader. She needs ships. She is being, again, wooed all around. Zaro uh, Zohandaxis has already kind of given his marriage pro- proposal. I'll get you, I'll get you, Westeros. Uh, marry me, and uh, you know, I'll give you some of my money here. Bigger lesson to come for Danny in that. So she goes to the spice trader. I got to imagine she's had these conversations with every one of the 13 of Karth. Piat Pri wants, uh, you know, wants her to come uh, see some magic tricks and everything. And by the end of this episode, we're going to go a little bit more into what he wants and what he gets. But this spice trader scene is spectacular. Danny wants her ships. And she answers spice trader that she wants her birthright, the Iron Throne. She talks about wanting to retake it. It's, again, her birthright. But the spice trader, throughout this scene, speaks what I feel, for my money, is nothing but the truth. He speaks the truth. Oh, he's swarmy. Again, very misogynistic. Very little princess. He's a dick. Let's just say it. But, unfortunately, I will say, I think everything in this scene the spice trader is saying to her is true, or things she has to consider, or things she has to re-examine about what she's been told. One of the tragedies to me in the life of Daenerys Targaryen is she was fed lies from the beginning. And they talk about him here. She talks about, you know, she says, the people will rise to fight for the rightful queen when I return. Again, Viserys has said to her because in Illyrio echoes it it's the Targaryen restoration you gotta believe it oh they hold secret toasts in your honor all through Westeros 
Everyone wants the Targaryens back. They don't like Robert. They don't like what the Lannisters. They don't like what's going on. They want you, the Targaryens. Aegon uh, conquered. Yeah, but peace did come after that. And what a great time. Uh, Megar the Cruel, don't worry about that. Dance of Dragons, don't worry about that. The small folk want you. Danny, and you killed your brother. Now you get, they still want you. You got the name. They, they want you on the throne and they'll serve you. Danny has, why shouldn't she believe it? Again, she's been fed these lies all along the way. And then you start combining that with the way she's treated. That, this whole scene, this whole scene to me is a template for the stuff that Danny deals with later on, for what she goes through in Slaver's Bay. Uh, a woman in this world just not treated right, not given the chance, so she has to fight for it. Everything, and, and D.B. Weiss and Benioff talk about this, talk about the whole stuff uh, going on here in this particular episode of, uh, in Karth. Danny has to learn self-reliance. And I keep going back to, uh, you know, at the end of, uh, the end of this episode, we'll, we'll jump a little bit to that right now. Her dragons are stolen, Eerie is dead, and she is not in control. She was not con- in control at the gate of Karth. She needed uh, help. She needed uh, Zaro Zohandaxis to declare Sumai. She needed, she always needs everyone. Up until this season. And up until, I think, season three, it starts to change. And the lessons come, we're going to get into it. Um, so, she, um, you know, she... She's going through these uh, these big lessons here, uh, these powerful lessons, and uh, what I'm saying, I lost track a little bit, and I apologize. Um, this is a template all through her life. So when she gets to Westeros, when she lands on Dragonstone, this great moment, not a lot of people cheering for her. The people will rise to fight for the rightful queen. Maybe some want to, but some are, you know, we got a king in the north, and we got Cersei there. It's a lie, you were saying. And the men are constantly belittling her. They're constantly overlooking, constantly got the little princess attitude. She's justified in her anger. And, and, and this is why I say Danny is, even in some of the deaths, we talk about the death of, of Viserys and her, cold, her, her stone-cold stare watching her brother. That's a great moment. Great moment. We can start to question it. We can re-examine it. Already something's starting to happen. Miriam has dual, dual, or something that's already starting to happen there. Danny wants to hear her screams. Fire and blood is in her veins. But it didn't have to be. And the choice is, who are you going to be? What are you going to do with your life? They, Danny's constantly faced with that, and, and things keep happening to her and the way she's treated. If the spice trader had simply treated her with more respect... Heard it out. Did, am I expecting him to give her all the ships? No, because again, everything you say is very logical. You don't have an army. You haven't been there. When when were you there last? One of my favorite moments. Ah, he's looking. He's almost. He almost wants to help. Again, he's a dick, but he almost wants to help. But every every bit of information Danny says it's it's no it's no facts. It's no truth. It's all destiny. It's all fire, blood, brimstone. He respects her passion, but he can't base any decisions off the of passion. Again, I think he's right. He's just a dick. Danny don't need him. Turns out Zara don't need him either. But, but this is again a template of everything that Danny faces and everything Danny has to overcome. And why, with no, you know, I think she needs to be in self control. She has she has to be in control of the situation. She has to have self control. She has to be uh, uh, be self reliant. But without those around her uh, to to uh, you know temper the the rage. Uh, this scene also shows you what she's capable of. I am not your little princess. I'm Daenerys, stormborn of the blood of old Valyria, and I will take what is mine with fire and blood. I will take it. Who are you going to be? Danny has been saying this even at the, the, the gates of Karth. I will burn cities to the ground. It's been there from the beginning. All along the way, you could choose, she can choose how not to go there. And again, watching her literally do this in season eight, episode five, The Bells, I could not stop thinking about this scene. And I'm one that I wish Danny didn't do that, but I'm watching The Bells, even though you don't see her much. One of the criticisms of the episode, they made a choice. I like the choice, but I get the criticism of Danny just becomes this. 
faceless thing on a dragon. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite episodes, but I understand it. But I, I kind of, to me, I don't need to see. I understand why Danny's chosen this path. She she was ready to choose this. And so I, as I watch her burn down King's Landing on high top Drogon in, in episode five of season eight, I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't blame her. <laughs> Go back to this type of scene. She she would have tried another way. She always wanted to try another way. It was in her heart. Who are you going to be? She's going to try to be the best queen. She wanted to be the best queen. Tyrion believed it. Everyone believed it because they knew it could be true. But often with, with what Danny was faced, with what Danny lost along the way, it was going to be a hard road. We're cheering for her in this scene. Are you still cheering for her in the bells? A little bit. There's no right or wrong answers too in this. I just I just love analyzing it. I'm talking more than longer than I planned on it. I I'm excited by it. I'm excited to analyze it. What does it mean? How can you take this in your own life? And and these fables, these modern myths, these big shows, they should have this kind of weight to it. This is why Vanessa Taylor just wrote an amazing episode all the way through. We're not even to some of the other big moments, some of the other scenes. Um so uh, again, at the end of this, her dragons are stolen. Eerie is dead. We, uh, we, we, we. I don't think we can overlook this. They, um, we don't see the Dorea scene of her choking Eerie. They cut that. Uh, I understand it. I think it's more impactful here. But she's she's already, you know, she's lost Drogo. She, her life's changed. But I think once she gets into into Karth, the 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 team around Danny's foreman. You know, it's what it's it's, it's season one. Danny, she's never was never going to conquer. With 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 Cal Drogo, he would have been more in charge. And yes, he wanted to give her the Iron Throne and defeat the men in the Iron Suits. But it was a different dynamic. It's by season two, by the end of season two, and end of season three, that's the Danny that's trying to t- take over the world, trying to conquer the world. As as many, including Dario, uh, warn her or say, "That's what you are." But along the way, the team is formed. Jorah's here. God bless my man, Jorah. He's there. Um, people are trying to be there, like Zaro. But you got someone like Eerie. Eerie is someone who was so faithful to her. Uh, helped her, uh, helped her uh, just kind of assimilate into this world that Danny wanted to be a part of. She was not like Viserys, who just wanted to use a Dothraki. Danny's like, I will, I will dress, I will talk, I will try to I respect and try to be part of this. I, I am you, you are me. Let's do that. And I think Eerie got it. And her death is one of those small, just kind of little building blocks that was pulled out from Danny. Um, Danny, by the end of it all, is alone. And this is one of the first key deaths, I think. Would Eerie have changed the entire path? No, no. But she's part of that tapestry there, a tapestry of support. And uh, Eerie's death is not to be overlooked by me. Uh, Looking at some of the um, uh, foreshadowing things with more meaning, all the stuff with John, it's it's, it's the most dramatic turn outside of joining the watch. Joining the watch is the big step, first step John takes, uh, but he wants to be the good old two-shoes ranger boy, staying with the watch after wanting to run down and, and stop by his buddies. Another big choice, choosing to go north with them. But this this is the biggest choice of John's life to me. Uh, so I love that there as well. Um, Cersei and her vengeance speech to, speech to Tyrion. Uh, really enjoy that scene. Um, it, it factors more into stuff later on with them, so I just I just love it, and and I didn't even write it down. But Cersei, like one day I hope you fall in love. I'm gonna take everything from you. Which okay, look, Cersei gets the game. She gets the game. That's her daughter. Marcella's being shipped off to Dorne, just like Cersei was shipped off to first uh, was gonna be married to Rhaegar, right? Uh, and then uh, you know, then Robert. Uh, Cersei's Cersei's been served a lot of bad things in her life too, so I understand where she's coming from. I love the little moment is uh, when Joffrey's at, uh, you know they're talking about Tom and crying, and Joff- Sansa kind of defends him, and, and Joffrey says, "Is your little brother a prince?" Well, no. Eventually, he'll be the king, and you'll be dead. To the end, we've got some stuff going on. Uh, Roose Bolton, uh, they've learned. Uh, Roose Bolton shows up with the. Bad information, Winterfell's been taken by the Greyjoys. I love that Roose Bolton says the Greyjoys are treasonous whores. Yes, they are, Roos. Yes, they are. So what does that say about you later on and Roos asking to send his bastard? It's such a small, inconsequential little aside. I got a bastard at the Dreadfort. He'll take a couple minutes. He'll go take Winterfell back. Don't worry about it, John. Or don't worry about it, Rob. Uh, John should worry about it, but don't worry about it, Rob. It's just 
bastard. What's his name? Ah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Oh, Ramsey. Uh, Osha, Osha and Theon, uh, she uh, is surviving. She's uh, using what, what she has, using the weapons she has, which in this case is herself, uh, to escape. Uh, but it does also foreshadow her death a little bit later on because uh, Theon warms, warns Ramsay, that bastard we all should worry about. So there's that. Again, talking about Eerie's death, I think that's uh, important. A small brick in the wall of good people going away. Uh, good people around Danny going away. Uh, we mentioned some of my favorite quotes already. Uh, Theon, did you hate us the whole time? God's help you, Theon, uh, Theon Greyjoy. You're truly lost. This is when I got to take a sip of water. Doing things all live to tape. Well, cotton mouth. Uh, Tywin and Arya and Baelish, and then Tywin and Arya, their second scene. Love all the stuff. I could probably spend way too long talking about Tywin and Arya. Uh, that's a sitcom we all wanted. Uh, the second scene, Tywin and Arya, really, to me, is some of the only insight in a softer way that we get into Tywin. We understand Tywin in a lot of ways. We understand things he does well, his mistakes, and what his, his, his undoing is. But talking about the story of Jamie and his dyslexia and trying to teach Jamie four hours a day to get him past it. And he hated me for it, hated me for a long time. It's like, oh, so I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, see, yeah, Tywin's a good dad. But he realized he probably wasn't doing it too much to, as a good father. He w- did not want imperfection in his house. He needed his family to be perfect. And he's got this, uh, you know, Tyrion over here is enough problems. But now you can't read, you, you scramble up the letters. Can't have that. And they talk, Ari asked about his father. And I love Tywin. Yeah, I knew my father. I grew up with him. I watched him get old. He became weak. It's why Tywin feels he has to defend his house at all costs. Good or bad. Mostly bad. It's a little inside in Tywin. I love that stuff. Uh, the stuff early, we got Ty- Tywin, Ari, and Bayless showing up. Having left Renly's camp, I love that moment, and it is one of those what ifs. We've talked about it here. I, I in my heart, in my heart, uh, I think Peter Baelish knew or strongly suspected that the uh, cupbearer next to him was was Arya Stark. Now, I've always come down on the fact that if he if he one hundred percent knew it was Arya, I don't think Baelish would have left that castle. I don't think I think he knows she's valuable. But he loves chaos as he tries to. I love that he tries to explain it to Tywin. And Tywin's like, yes, I know. Crisis is an opportunity. What else? What other insights you got for me? Great stuff from Tywin here. Um, Baelish takes it. Whatever. I know. You're smarter than me. I got it. I got it. But Baelish is just he's just sneaky enough, right? Actually, he's a lot sneaky. That I got to think that if he does know it's Arya, he might not tell Tywin because he wants to use that for himself. But anyways, I love that moment. It's played so well. The tension's great. Whether or not he actually sees it's Arya, you know, I don't even need to know the answer. It doesn't matter. He doesn't do anything with it. But it's just a great moment. The rec- There's a, so just a recognition in his face. Oh, Aiden Gillen. So good. Uh, there is uh, two great quotes from Tywin. I just love my cupbearer can read better than you talking to Amory Lorch. Uh, this idea here, men love to blame demons when their grand plans unravel. He says it to Baelish, talking about Renly's death. Baelish says, ooh, everyone says some dark forces did it. Now, we know that's true. We know the uh, demon smoke child of Melisandre and Stannis killed Renly. But for Tywin, I, this is the truth, man. This is something, I'm, quite frankly, I think I take this into the real world. Oh, I love a good conspiracy theory. I love hearing those stories. But it's so, uh, to me, conspiracies, conspiracy theories are, are a very easy way to just insulate yourself from the truth for not facing what's in front of you. So I heard this quote today, a quote I've heard many times, because I've watched this episode in this season many times. But hearing it again from Taiwan in 2021, men love to blame demons when their grand plans unravel. This is why I like Taiwan. There's some insight. There's some wisdom in Taiwan. Shay says to Sansa, don't trust anybody. Life is safer that way. She's not wrong. It's one of the, I think, a valuable lesson for Sansa, though she has to learn who to trust. And uh, often she's not in a position to trust. She has no choice. She's a pawn. Um, but interesting moments there. We like to highlight episode stars. Episode stars. I just got Simon Armstrong is, is corn half in. And also, look, right from the beginning, uh, Rose Leslie shows up as is a great and it ju- it just works and you get it. Um, you get why John pauses. Uh, I'm not just talking about sort of simple physical things or anything. I'm just like there's something in her eyes or something in her story. Um, so, you know, 
I love that too. So that is uh, our look. That is our look at uh, season six, uh, season two, episode six. Oh boy, been a long day. Uh, coming up after this one is, of course, a man without honor getting a lot of Jamie Lannister stuff in that one. So I want to thank you all for watching, listening here, Casterly Talk, and some news and notes. I think we did talk about it before, but I want to be clear. There right now, we're in a weird spot. There's actually two spots where you can watch this Casterly Talk video. The actual Casterly Talk YouTube channel that has just launched, that at the time of this recording has zero subscribers, because I just kind of put it together. And then here on the Suck YouTube page as well, where you're probably watching this one. Or you might be listening on the podcast feed, which is housed on Anchor. So here's some changes going forward. The Anchor podcast feed, or wherever you're listening to the podcast, stays the same. And this is where you want to stay to continue the Game of Thrones rewatch, but also to get ready for House of the Dragon. And yeah, at some point, another book may come out, and we'll be talking about it here. A lot of things I have uh, planned for this podcast feed, but also here as a YouTube YouTube entity or a video entity at least, um, We are now going to be part of the Good People Association, which is something I am working on with Josh McCuga, Mark Riley, and Eric Bass of Shinedown, and many others joining the team uh, to be on shows, behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, A lot of things going. It's a production company. It's it's a lot of other things, but it's also a digital brand, kind of a network. So uh, Cashly Talk is not going to be on the GPA YouTube uh, page or the Twitch page. Uh, It's going to be its own thing here on YouTube and maybe eventually on Twitch. We'll see. Um, but, uh, so subscribe over to the Casterly Talk YouTube page as well. And then through the Good People Association, the GPA will be growing the channel, getting ready for House of the Dragon. But if you're just a podcast listener, I shouldn't say just, that's not fair. I'm a podcaster who loves podcasts. If you listen on podcasts, don't worry, not going anywhere. Everything stays the same. All right. All right. More announcements on the GPA coming soon. Thank you for listening to Casterly Talk. I'm Ken Napsock. We'll see you next time here inside the world of ice and fire.